0: That's the sound of the cold ground crunching under my feet. The new year has turned and it's deep midwinter. As winter weather goes, it doesn't get much better than this. Everything looks sparkling and new under a sprinkling of snow followed by a heavy frost. There's a fresh wind, a clear blue sky, bright sunlight that even carries a bit of warmth and an almost palpable hush, as though life is in hiding, quietly enfolded by the season. Welcome to the winter episode of the Shaking Bog podcast, where art and nature meet. I'm Catherine Noons, director of the Shaking Bog Festival, and I'm heading up with my dogs into Kirtlestown Wood, near my home, in the heart of the Glencree Valley, County Wicklow. I always feel compelled to head towards the light at this time of year, which is why I've chosen to go uphill, through the woods, the woods where I frequently walk or sometimes march, or even linger, depending on my mood. This hill has been so well trodden by my footsteps that over time it has absorbed many of my wishes, secrets, reflections and longings, each one landing quietly in its always soothing beauty. In keeping with the mood of the season, This winter episode contains a blend of reflections, conversations and writings on the more hidden recesses of the natural world. We begin with a reading from a new book, Thin Places by Kerry Knee Doherty, due to be published at the end of January. As Kerry notes, the piece was recorded in her home, an old stone railway cottage beside the bog on the old ghost line that once connected the south of Ireland to the north. It is an achingly delicate piece of writing, combining place, memory, history, politics, and the spaces in between.
1: Yesterday, beneath a morning moon, low and white, hanging in a winter blue sky, I stood under an old gnarly thorn tree as a solo robin hopped about my feet in a sodden field. I followed the line he made on the muddy surface with my eyes, from here to there and back again, then up, then off, now away. When he had gone, I followed his line with my feet as well as my eyes, with my legs dragging my body through thick bog muck, full of the past, full of things we may never quite understand. At the point in the field where he had left me to tread this new stretch of land alone, there was something black and solid, something other than winter grass and peat-brown bog water. I placed my hands over it, tracing the curved lines that ran across its form like waves, an ebb and flow, the kind of which I had never before set eyes on. Bog Oak, sculpted over thousands of years by the weight of what it has known in the place where it has lain. I left it there and quickly made my way back to the gate at the top of the field, just as sleet began to turn the field pewter grey, thrown across by a wind that had been hidden in the trees. As quickly as the sleet had come, the sky was full to bursting above my head with armfuls of missile thrushes, calling and dragging storm light in their wings. They landed, chaotic, cinematic, all at once, despite the howling winds. I ran back into the wind that bit and barged to the earth beneath the thorn tree and lifted the ancient black wood from the part of the field where it had been spat out. I lifted it and I brought it back with me across the field, up the laneway, into my home. I am still that wee girl, with her eyes open to this turning, aching earth. I still feel it all, every single part of it, deeper than my bones. Wing beats above a concrete council estate. Snow light on blossom after violence. Moth light on a red fox after loss. I am still that wee girl seeking beauty in the murk.
0: Here in Ireland we are now back in lockdown as Covid cases seem to be running rampant. As I stand at the top of Kirtlestown woods, overlooking this valley and the hills beyond, I feel grateful to be living in this wonderful landscape. It never ever fails to inspire wonder and offer hope. But how would it be to be locked into a small warm space with only critters for company? Collie Ennis knows the answer to that. He's a herpetologist and research associate in the zoology department at Trinity College Dublin, who actually has his own podcast, The Critter Shed. Having grown up obsessed by bugs, reptiles and amphibians, basically creatures that are hidden from plain sight and that many of us fear, his critter shed, at the bottom of his garden, is literally alive and hopping with thousands of these creatures, all dependent on his expert and tender care. As part of our series of conversations between artists and nature experts, I set off to Collie's shed in West Dublin to record him in conversation with artist Chanel Walsh. Chanel is an extraordinary painter whose largely abstract work explores and interprets the inner or hidden recesses of earth and soil, ground and nature, anatomy and flesh.
2: Welcome to the Critter Show. Thank
3: you. <laughs> well, I I I see it more as a studio space. Oddly, I'm just making comparisons. Yeah.
2: So um, you, you, you're a really top now. I saw some of your work today. I'm really impressed. I'm, thank you. I was an artist for a, a brief moment in time many years ago. I went to art college for, well, a PLC course in art.
3: Okay. But I
2: didn't have the discipline to stick with it. Um, but yeah, it's I really I've I've still kept an interest in it, and it's nice to nice to talk to artists always. Yeah. Um, and your work is like, you've got a lot of nature based kind of stuff in your work.
3: Yeah. Well, at the moment I'm looking at flowers a lot. Right. And that was very much unintended. But I, um, I had a friend who was a gardener, and she passed away in June, and. I learned a lot from her really and uh, after she passed away I made a painting that was um it was basically like two it's kind of two roses but it's quite abstract. I had been looking at flowers already but then I kind of thought I think I'll keep exploring keep this with that, yeah. yeah like some other work was very much I would go to medical museums and do research. Yeah, I saw a
2: lot of human body stuff.
3: Yeah, and I had like even surgeons and scientists helping me out and putting specimens on trays out for me and everything. Wow. Um, So that was very much like a very literal investigation. Um, Whereas I find gardens, I just have to look so I think maybe the difference between me and you is a lot of I, what I'm doing is just looking and observing, and it's quite on an aesthetic point of view. Right. Whereas you might be digging into little details a bit more.
2: Right. I got you. Do you know. Yeah. When when I'm when I'm kind of focusing on a new species, or like recently, I got these these uh, this little girl here. I can just get her out, but uh, now you can see. It's beautiful. Look at those those colours there underneath. Okay. This is a this is called a a, a P. metallica. It's a it's a kind of um arboreal tree spider from India. Okay. You can see the blues.
3: Yeah, it's I'm just
2: electric m- metallic blues and yellows and
3: a few flecks of orange.
2: Yeah. Just one of those one of those animals that when you look at it, it just reminds you how.
3: You know, amazing how nature, amazing
2: is. nature is, and how
3: even that they, they're not actually colours that you would associate with the creature because um, it even looks a little purpley.
2: There is purple, yeah, I mean? yeah. yeah, it's a really bright purple, and it's it's um, but
3: you don't see very often, in...
2: In, you don't see it in nature that often, but it for some reason, look at that,
3: yeah, oh wow,
2: it's gorgeous, isn't it? That it, is... it almost looks like it was in, in, a toy, almost. a toy, yeah, you made up, even invented, think,
3: yeah. And do you, what do you think of I there was something I saw online someone described your shed as a Noah's Ark and you're Noah <laughs> taking care of all the small creatures do you see that as your your purpose in life
2: um I get I get a lot of pleasure out of this it's something Some people like to play golf and some people like to paint and some people like to whatever hobbies they have or whatever, you know, endeavors they want to do. And just for me, first and foremost, I really enjoy it gives me a sense of relaxation. It sounds weird, but I get really relaxed from hanging Mm. around with snakes and scorpions and spiders and just uh, it focuses me because I tend to be a a bit scatterbrained sometimes and it gives me a bit of focus. A lot of focus, and that kind of uh, helps me relax. Uh, so, first and foremost, it is a, a selfish thing, I suppose. Uh, well, just something I get—I get a lot of pleasure of.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: After that, then, um, I—I I like that I do science communication, public outreach, making people aware of animals that they mightn't be aware of, making them think about doing a little bit of conservation in their own back gardens or in their own neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I feel like if I have a purpose, that's the purpose and that connects nicely into this because you can grab people's attention with a flashy tropical spider. But then you can point out that we have a very interesting species uh, in Ireland and this is how you can help them. A, B, C and D. Yeah. So that's that's my little kind of my reason for doing that, I suppose. (laughs) And what about you with the with the with, with your art?
3: it's a full-time
2: career for you as well isn't it
3: yeah um well yeah i mean i guess it's my purpose in life that's sort of what it comes down to and don't get me wrong i struggled for many years wondering was it my purpose in life Mm -hmm. at all you know but at this stage i feel compelled to put it out there to make it Mm. and Initially, it's just for myself, same as you. It's a selfish thing. It's just something I want to do by myself, whether anyone sees it or not. And actually, many pieces people will never see.
2: See, fair enough.
3: And after that, if it creates awareness around something or sparks conversations between people or gives other people ideas for themselves, then it's serving its purpose. Yeah. And it's also something that informs me of who I am. I don't know if that makes any sense, but a lot of the time I can make a whole body of work, and not really know what I'm doing. Okay. And then a year later, look back on it and and realize why I made it.
2: Right. Yeah. So like what your frame of mind was at yeah. the time, but you you weren't.
3: Yeah. So the work that I'm making yeah. right now, I have no idea why I'm making okay. it.
2: Okay. I'm just I yeah. just
3: feel compelled to do it.
2: When you were when you were doing the bodies, the working with the bodies, what? What was the spark that made you think this is a good idea?
3: Because um, I,
2: I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I've never, of it was I,
3: hearts and brains and it's lungs. It's kind of it's
2: very old school. Um, Anatomy. Di- Anatomy, yeah, yeah, yeah like yeah. Leonardo da Vinci kind of grave diggers. Kind I know, of, yeah. Would,
3: would,
2: da, would that like death be a big part of uh, uh, your work a lot?
3: Um, no. To be honest, I wouldn't say death. I would just say nature. I would right, say okay. the process of life to death. You know back to the ground and you know plants emerging and returning and it's just this cycle and um do you uh, do you tune into their to the personalities of some of these animals like is there any is there anything that you feel would reflect your personality a little bit
2: the, these are kind of creatures the stuff that i deal with aren't Uh, affectionate really you know Mm. Um, especially arachnids and stuff they're just like programmed to do what they do and I like that there's an honesty in it there's a real okay brutal honesty about it Um, it's very simple and yeah I I, I do like that I don't really I suppose I I, I like that toughness about them and I'd like to think that I'm like that I'm probably not being honest with you but uh (laughs) I do, I do like that. I admire them, I think they're fascinating creatures. I love the fact that I'm walking with an animal that hasn't changed in a couple of million years, a couple of hundred million years mm. in some cases, you know? So yeah. it's like that, It, it's just, that's crazy to me. It's really interesting.
3: I was going to ask you if we could see the famous Vivian.
2: Oh, you see? If she's around. around. Yeah,
3: yeah. And how long have you had her?
2: uh she is 19 this year oh wow yeah so she's pretty famous she's been on like the late late show and (laughs) she's been in a couple of movies (laughs) wow yeah
3: so she's a tarantula
2: she's a yeah so she's a Chilean rose tarantula and she has that rose kind of tint color on her yeah on her back there and then you can see her hairy backside she can flick those hairs off if she wants and they go in your eyes and your throat. That's to protect herself. Okay. They very rarely bite. Yeah. Um, But uh, long lived 25 to 30 years for females. The males will only live four years, one to four years, because once the males mate with the females, they generally get eaten.
3: Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so- By the female? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And why would the female want to well, eat the male?
2: Well, as soon as she's been impregnated, she's she going to need food, nursing. and she mightn't come across food for a long time. So, okay, you'll you you'll do for a nice post-coital snack. Okay, <laughs> the males, like in 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 a lot of arachnids, are just genetic couriers. They okay. literally exist just to
3: just pass to on keep their it going. That's exactly yeah. It. Okay, wow. and um, so Vivian's nineteen. Would she? produce any more babies still she, or?
2: she's done she's done a fair few batches and she will still produce babies until she passes away
3: okay wow. so
2: yeah they're very prolific um, you'd have to imagine though in the wild they have 100 or 200 babies and the vast majority of them would be wiped out um, it's just the way it is it's a numbers game with spiders okay Um, but obviously if you have them in captivity you can keep them and grow them all on Okay. do what I do so yeah
3: and in terms of like um, the the death, then so the the female tarantula would just stop producing babies and then just just they die usually like die yeah
2: they usually die of just uh, old age spiders they'll die in their burrows or they they molt they shed their skin sometimes when they get to a certain age older the older females haven't got the energy to molt and they'll literally
3: just kind keel of...
2: over in their, inside their own skin they'll just won't won't have the energy to do it it's, it's just very as I said to you earlier on it's like it's a real window into an alien world mm. you know you can kind of imagine like it's such a strange existence even how they perceive the world
1: mm. like
2: they don't have eyesight like we would they sense more with their hairs and their body so it's almost like an echolocation but what they want to do or what they're programmed to do they're almost like robots in a way they're, they're programmed it to survive make more babies eat and make more baby spiders and that's it and that's their world and it is quite limited and Mm. um, they don't they're not like big wanderers or anything like that the females will find a hole and live in it for their whole life if they can which makes them ideal for pets especially if you have limited space yeah Um, it's cruel keeping big animals in small spaces Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially like vertebrate animals, like more intelligent animals, because they they do need stimulation. Mm. Whereas tarantulas don't. They just want to be in a burrow and they're very happy. They wouldn't know the difference between your vivarium in your house in London Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the natural place where they came from, if they're being cared for correctly. Okay. So it's a pretty ethical pet to have. Um, And I I, I do try and encourage people, if you're going to get something unusual... Um, that won't break the bank because tarantula is a really good, yeah. interesting pet to have you know.
3: Okay, okay. Yeah. Cool.
2: I really enjoyed that too.
3: Me too. Yeah, it really good. <laughs>
2: would you ever think of doing some uh, painting with, with some creature, creepy collies? Um,
3: Do you know what is really catching my eye? It's the texture of the tarantula, the yeah. the colour and the, the hairiness.
2: Isn't it I amazing? I feel like
3: that's something I would really pick up on. Yeah the form as well all of these long lines it's not that it's a spider actually it's just that it's just such an unusual object from Objects. nature yeah 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 so that's really caught my eye
2: yeah it really is beautiful
3: yeah so you're, yeah, you're after you're
2: like... you're after inspiring me now i'm gonna take some time out to uh stop and and look at the aesthetics and the beauty of 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 these creatures
3: okay Um, A little bit more. (laughs) Well, I (laughs) feel inspired just being in this shed, the
2: critter shed. You're very welcome. I'm I'm after really enjoying that chat. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you. It's been great.
0: Surrounded as I am now by this eerily quiet landscape that is shrouded in darkness for so much of the day during winter. I can really understand the appeal of sitting by the fireside storytelling and how folk tales may have emerged out of the winter shadows and were then passed on, evolving from generation to generation. With this in mind, I had the privilege of meeting master teller of tales Owen de Bardun, a writer, poet, folk herbalist, and activist who is, amongst many other things, a passionate advocate of his own often overlooked traveller culture. He recently published Why the Moon Travels, a wonderfully sensitive, first-ever retelling of traveller folktales, beautifully illustrated by artist Leanne McDonough.
5: I just Wanted to write a book, yeah, and I often find that many travellers are we're kind of um, pushed into corners that we only do it on traveller topics, mm. and then which is ridiculous because the book I ended up writing was about Travers, um, you know, but because that was the book that wanted it to be written, and that was the, these are the stories that keep kept coming up and kept being mm. re- reaffirmed or mm. re spoken around when talking going, going, isn't it a pity that the majority of the population don't even realize this? Isn't it? Isn't it? have so many of those like wonderful jewels that are just left around. That that if people had the opportunity to polish them, that they they realise that they're not they don't just belong to travellers, but we are part of the Irish movement, part mm. of the European movement, mm. and that we belong to one another. Mm. There has definitely definitely uh, been I suppose, um I suppose I would call it kind of um terria. so there is kind of a detachment um from the like, generations, but the resources such as reconnecting with nature and returning as much as possible to those kind of those spaces it is incredibly uh, I suppose renewing it's peaceful um, like and, and nature is the grand renewer like the rain falls on all people mm-hmm. be it in a trailer or on, or on a
0: mountain on a hill but, uh, but nature is the great uh, equaliser I was just wondering about the sense of connection to nature within it mm-hmm. you know is that something that would be embedded in your the traveller culture do you think? It would
5: be because until very recently as recently as 2001 normalism was very much a norma- I suppose a normalised part of, of the movement and then in 2001 actually normalism was effectively And um, but when I was growing up even though we had a Kenya which is a home, a house and we would have travelled for several months during the year and not just kind of for the festivals or the kind of local markets but there's a sense of a want to travel the natural status of mankind is to people who are to move and the history of Ireland as people of movement. is almost that like we've continued attrition of movement. And then when, you, when you're someone who moves a lot, you spend the majority of your time outside. Because even look at the attrition are kind of the, the wagons and the, and the trailers and the tents. They're very, very small spaces. So people will spend a significant amount of time outside. And the more time you spend, spend outside, you, the more opportunity you have to, to see the wonder of it all. Um, but there is like, there's a saying of take a long walk through a short field. Yeah. Um, the idea is that kind of, we're rushing around, we're, we're distracted by things that are not really important to us. And there is so much that we, we go unseen in our own worlds every day um, that spending time with nature not only brings us back to nature, but brings us back to who, who we truly are.
0: Would you like have grown up with, a, I suppose, a sort of intuitive kind of understanding of the natural world around you and the animals?
5: And... So I, I grew up in a place called uh, uh, Tirboi, it was on the edge of Clunatua, which is on the edge of Tum. Um, and then from being the, from the family I'm from, and the sense of even around the concept of ownership of land. So in 2011, myself and my partner uh, purchased our first home. My father came to me and said, "This is the, you were the first generation of our people to ever be at risk of being homeless because the idea of homelessness uh, they, they, it didn't really exist within the community because people could, all, could often um, so self accommodate or accommodate with kind of family, um, and even when it comes to the ownership of physical space the land. You can have you can be a caretaker of it, you can be a kindred minder of it, you can grow stuff on it, you can have animals on it, and that needs to be respected. But you can't own it. You know, you can't actually own this, these things that we're not we're not on that kind of tip of that triangle of like who's the most important in, in our ecosystem. We're actually it's a circle and we're we're in the mix of it. So growing up we we've never seen this to be um, owners of a land are better than the, the, the fox that lived in the field because that's the fox's home you know and chances are we probably would react very hostile if a stranger walked into our home you know so it's understanding the idea of kind of going like nature wants to have its own balance but we need to respect those spaces too the, the, the I suppose the ease of modern life has taken us away from that intimacy it's, mm-hmm. so, it's so easy not to have an intimate relationship with the world around you Absolutely. and, and be, to have one that tests our own limits in ways that we're not expecting mm. um, but like even when people at the moment are talking about how, how mankind is destroying the earth and we're doing all these horrible things and I think going earth will always recover we're destroying our ability to live in it like, it's like we're destroying our ability but nature will survive you know na- nature has been here before us and been here after us so it's us working out what relationship do we want to have and a lot of the tales and stories are about reconnecting those missing threads but also encouraging people to go off and recreate their own, re-spin their own, retell their own, like reconnect with their own, because everybody has stories.
0: You, I know, you trained as a herbalist I as did. well. Yeah, I did. Yeah. And I notice in the stories, there's quite a lot about um, about herbalism. You mm-hmm. mention it several times in the use of plants
5: in a, in, in a medicinal yeah. way. Yeah, it was. And my family would, would be practitioners of folk herbalism, yeah. uh, which most kind of tra- travellers family would be, because until again, very recently, most people would be either very, very self-reliant or there might be hesitation engaging with the services. And um, what most people don't know, that we do have a missing generation of people. Um, not only like taken by the, the losses of life, but the, we have a whole generation of people that were put into, into state homes. So people went through a period of being very hesitant of engaging with the state. So they, they did further explore or reconnect with their traditional skills, and a lot of our recollection and exchange of information on herbalism is done via stories. And um, and they, even when it comes to our kind of traditional recipes, by telling them in the forms of stories, we have a sense of of of, of suppose remembering them in a very different way. So there'd be an engagement around that you are that you're responsible for your own health and that the world around you isn't isn't, isn't in any way a distraction, but is an ally waiting to be reconnected with.
0: And I was just wondering, is that something that you would think about a lot now that maybe it's our turn to go in and help the animals and and nature to heal. Oh, yeah. Do you know what I mean? That oh this, very much so yeah
5: and, and even how we deal with like this the understanding of like invasive plant species. Um, like, I don't really know of any direct invasive plant species. I know plants that have come from foreign lands that are quite quickly adapted to our, our spaces. For example, the, even the, the, one of the stories of the, the dandelion, people hating the dandelion, Do you know, like people will spend all this like weed killer and everything kind of going. It's a strong nutrient plant that is, is really good at propagating itself. Like, it's, it's a feisty plant. Like, we can learn a lot from it rather than mm-hmm. trying to kill it off. My people, traditionally, were the first recyclers. Like, we recycled yeah. and mended everything. That was one of our primary mm-hmm. jobs or recreated items uh, or traded them. So the idea of like the, so everything had a kind of a sense of a cycle. And then we have the introduction of plastic or, or mass production, all of those things were lost and people had lost a bit of, of how they engaged with themselves. But most things that people have can be repaired um, or resalvaged. even the building we're in now, like, we're resalvaging a building that we've left abandoned, you know, recreating it into a different space. And um, and I, I think that it's not just about how we're going to move forward, Is that people have done this in the past. You know there has always been these cycles that we've lost those, those connections it's about we I suppose learning from the the losses but uh, ensuring that when we do move forward that we, we do it in a way that it's for, for all not just for the, the man of in, in the world you know we have a sense of that, that we are a part of this much wider beautiful cornucopia of understanding and expressions in life and to reconnect with that um, can be challenging especially if, if we're in places of poverty or struggle or,
0: or vice um, but my god like what's the alternative and um, in your uh, storytelling I mean I loved I loved the way you had the little anecdote personal anecdote yeah. before each tale which just kind of uh, showed the sort of passing down through the generation yeah and I wanted to it to be
5: real because yes. kind of otherwise
0: here's the story yeah. and, but actually going here's
5: the story how I got it and how I how you felt it and how I heard it and I'm saying to you, and you go off to your own, because even, the, even the, the drawings done by Liam McDonough, who's a Trevor artist, um, like how we go, the only speculation I really wanted was to be black and white, because when we, like growing up, a lot of the storytelling were told around fires. And I like the idea of the smoke retelling and remoulding the story. But the, her images was her, were her retellings of the story. So she heard the story, she read the story, then she went off and told it in a visual way. And I, I absolutely adore that. And um, I find that really, really interesting. But also, the idea would be that just like the, the world around us, stories are alive. They're just alive in a different way. Because I think when it comes to identity and our connection with tales and the world around us, it's very retrospective. We used to, and once upon a time, and in the past, and rather than going, no, 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 here now too, you know, like that, that, that sense of wonder and awe doesn't just happen like 50, 100 years ago. It can happen now. And so, putting fresh life into, into tales is very, very important. In this graveyard, not far from my family home, stands a stand the scattering of tall yew trees, beaten by age, weather, and the waves of grief. They have endured for all those who have passed by them. I recall admiring them as a child, those beautiful, solemn figures rooted throughout the sacred space. Their high, cold grey stone walls and dark iron gates marked the boundaries between the place of the dead and that of the living. I remember asking my father later that day where the yew trees, and where they came from, and this is what he told me, and why they are always found in graveyards. Many years ago, on a date not recalled exactly, distant enough to be forgotten, but recent enough to, to still be spoken about, there was a young man, newly married, with a beautiful child, and a home filled with so much love and care that dawn brought only joy and twilight brought no quarrels. They lived for some years, knowing only the glow of shared kindness and hopes of a bright future. One year, however, in the depths of winter. Their home was visited by quick fever, and all three of them were struck by it. Their limbs were heavy and smouldering like the charred branches of a campfire, their laboured breaths like, the, like it strangled smoke. By the second day, the wife and child had succumbed to it. On the third day, the young man recovered and walked to his loss. His legs were weakened, soft like willow. His pale face was awash was a with sweat like cold winter dew, bleached of charm and wealth and warmth. He was bereft and gripped by the loss of his loved ones. After the funeral, he stayed by the graves until the night had passed and as the fresh dawn was breaking on the horizons. His friends came and brought him home, welcoming him back to the world as a living with company and light conversation. The next day, the man returned to the graveyard until his friends again came and brought him home. Each day, that pattern repeated. The man would arise from his bed and wander to the gravesite. The day would pass, and in the stillness of the night, his friends would seek him out and bring him home. Soon, soon he refused to return home at all, shunning his friends, staying in the graveyard to watch over the grave of his lost loved ones. He stood, a solitary bewildered figure, his once bright future in ashes. The man had neither north nor south, nor the track to the road back to who he had been. Over time, his skin began to crack and darken by the sun, the rain and the gale. His hair became tangled with twigs, feathers and spiders. As the days passed, he grew colder and fixed, rigid and moving. Even his voice, once warm in speech, had begun to change to a mumble of cracks and crackles. His clothes withered and grew green with mildew and moss, and his tears, still sharp with loss, were red round droplets against his cracked skin. His toes, knowing the earth beneath his feet so very well, grew long and twisted, reached down to the the familiar spot that had rooted him to the place his toenails coiled and gnarled and clawed through the soil and stone, snapping the tangled tendrils of the deep, dank earth beneath the quite topside of the graveyard. What had once become daily visits, a heartfelt pilgrimage of remembrance and reconnection, had become the loss of coming home, and he had become something else. What stood at the gravesite was no longer the shape nor shade of a kind man, the good husband, the doting father, but instead a figure of cracked, Bark-like skin, green spines from age, and red berries from the tears had spilled from him. In the luck of his grief, that man had become the first ever yew tree. Thank you.
0: I'm walking home now through the trees, somewhat sheltered from the brisk winter air. Here, the ground underfoot is soft and sodden, no longer brittle with ice. And I am reminded that although winter is often regarded as a time of dying and darkness, it is also a time of renewal and rebirth. The wood may look as though it is sleeping, but the soil beneath is teeming with energy in the process of recycling the debris of old growth in order to replenish and prepare for the new life to come. I spent a wonderful few hours with one of Ireland's most celebrated poets, Núlany Gónal, in her new home on the banks of the Dargal River. And amidst the chat and reflections, she read one of her poems on Vabo Bhriste that deftly and warmly interweaves mythology with memory. We've also included a translation by John Montague.
4: A Vabo in the Tabar Cut his jack of Aravok Hodder and the West Lefonag, a jack fecoti of our Glockshe prab and wickness and clock polish, nor a lame capini, the bucky pile can avail. Nor a crumb the mere coin, again of in the show is nor a coalish old kin on gown cut into the air. But gober no good to contamin big us, nor a gov a so car pride is patre a in the bill. Potoga er sille le a for the weel iss nu get an skihan leher in despair hekullorach is ri o hin Tantu marineine hirri er an on the the voile luish ba is the lo tyhul flushedch oskelter the lo is the Kitu an mother is a hall attack o bro on the fee paved in the bluish is the the goal saw. Tagan Brock o Mahan, is Nina Lapee. Sanje Hock Sonishke, is Law and Fortruin, Taganadine, is Cassenshit Shaknuri Ardeshil, Legak Kassa, Cahenshit Clock Sonishke. Titchen the Clock of Yogasa and Wasart. Titchen Lesh Naknoano on Grand Queel, a Tar Yesh and of Rawr, is Vasak, or Vak Benehus or Tukuk and Green Yarag, the winter hulevine, is then a heribaline, denishe lachmaller, the ishkig ochter and tubber, as lachfoller, the nyachter, fosnive kareasat. The town to her, the sherry and salaib, the winner all talk to her, less rangin, lobelia. Heem de mini lea, a stan rum gantlas, askach palsma, askach lachon, Ophelia. How come I wrote it? It was, you know, I, I fell going into it. Uh, there was something in the, in the, in the ground or something that I fell. And I looked up and the grass was taller than me. And it, it was like being one or two or something. And then the grass being taller than you. And, I, and next thing I do, I, I wrote the formula it. I don't know, it was this funny feeling. O little broken doll, dropped into the well, thrown aside by a child scampering downhill to hide under the skirts of its mother. In twilight's quiet he took sudden fright as toadstool caps snatched at his tongue. Foxgloves crooked their finger at him and from the oak he heard the owl's low call. His little heart must have stopped when a weasel went by with a fat young rabbit in its jaws, loose guts spilling across the grass while a batwing flicked across the evening sky. He rushed away so noisily and ever since you were a lasting witness to the fairy arrow that stabbed his eye. Stuck in the mud, your plastic eyes squinting open from morning to night, you see the vixen and her brood stealing up to the lap the ferny swamp hole near their den. The badger loping to wash his paws, snuff water from his snout. On pattern days, people parade seven clockwise round. At every turn, throw in a stone. These small stones rain down on you. The nuts from the hazel tree that grows to the right of the well also drop down. You will grow wiser than any blessed trout in this ooze. The red-breasted robin of the O'Sullivans will come to transform the surface to honey with her quick tail. Turn the depths to blood, but you won't move. Be marred, your neck strangled with the lobelias. I see your pallor staring starkly back at me from every swimming hole, from every hole, Ophelia.
0: I'm on my way home now to warm myself by the fire. I'm ending this podcast with a final brief and hopeful reflection from Nula on the cycle of life and death. I look forward to the spring and until then, stay warm, keep safe and be well.
4: I was very, very poor during the um, the, the recent uh, lockdown and I, and I very much felt like, you know, you know, that my end was coming, you know, and I was thinking of all sorts of things like that. Mm. And um, um, uh, eventually, eventually, well, I I found that, number one, and I'm not afraid of death, and number two, that um, it's going to be a great excitement, whatever it is. (laughs) (laughs) You know, know, whatever it is, it is, it's going to be
0: great fun, Mm No. The Shaking Bog is delighted to have presented this podcast in collaboration with Culture Nature and Mermaid Art Centre in Bray. It was edited by Björn McGilla and mixed by Steve McGrath with special thanks to Ray Harmon for his music.